you're back for part two, hearing me wax philosophically about memory, the brain, the self, who we are. And I do want to talk a little bit about memory and using it as a therapy. But let's first talk about choices and influence. We have less free will with our thoughts than we would like to believe. That clearly seems true with some forms of mental illness, as I don't think paranoid schizophrenics choose to have the delusions and hallucinations they experience. In a similar way, that we don't choose the bizarre thoughts and visions that can happen while dreaming. But even when awake, without underlying mental illness, having a lack of free will with our thoughts, and therefore some of our actions, is a truism for all of us to varying degrees. Anybody who really thinks about this deeply is bound to have at least a little bit of an existential crisis, but it also can be seen as an existential opportunity. It doesn't need to be a crisis resulting in despair. In a way, it can be somewhat relieving to know that the lack of predictability of our minds is not totally because of self-induced faults. We can take pride in our ability to remain strong during a time of struggle. Yes, we can make choices, and those that believe they can determine their fate are more likely to be successful. Believing that choices don't matter is not only wrong, but can kill self-motivation. Though we do make choices, and even in diseases like addiction that can sway us to make poor choices, we must accept that our prior experiences and underlying dispositions influence choices in the same way a well-done advertisement or a news commentator influences us. A frequently used example to make this point is airplanes. Many people have some jitters when flying, while few have jitters getting into a car to drive to the store, even though your risk of death is higher with the car ride. You may know that statistically, cars are more dangerous, but news events about airplane crashes are partly responsible for influencing neural pathways to make some, like myself, think irrationally about airplanes. Exactly the same way a well-respected doctor will influence the thoughts and actions of patients or residents, even though that respected doctor will not be 100% correct all the time. Again, the point being, we are not as in control of our thoughts and actions, even though we may live in a free society like the USA. External influences from the media, advertisements, mentors, and gender expectations can be very powerful. Let's say you're having obsessive thoughts about someone you are convinced doesn't like you or an episode of melancholy, those thoughts and feelings are not totally in our control. Blaming ourselves for every obsession or feeling is not therapeutic, though there may be things we can do that are therapeutic. Such therapeutic options may include cognitive exercises, physical exercises, healthy hobbies, reading a book, making new relationships, or even on occasion when all else fails, medications, or... Perhaps, moving into a new frontier, we can consider implanting or changing memories. But to do that, we have to understand false memories. Now let's revisit my statement from the last podcast where I said, Our memories are corrupted interpretations of past events that are manipulated recollections of real and imagined experiences. The experience we had is different from the memories we recall about what happened. 
which is telling us a story about what happened. Memories are constructed and reconstructed. Misinterpretation and distortions are frequent. There are no lack of confirmed accounts of smart people that have had false memories. Before we talk about false memory, it may be worth saying a few words about so-called repressed memories. The recovery of repressed traumatic memories seems very unlikely. Amnesia happens, but having a selective amnesia for a major event seems improbable unless a disease process like a stroke or other brain injury occurs. Most torture victims and those going through traumas very much recall having gone through the event according to those who have studied such survivors. Victims may consciously suppress a memory so they can live their lives without constantly thinking about the Holocaust or a gang rape. But let's not confuse conscious suppression with unconscious repression. We must be extremely skeptical of repressed memories that are suddenly retrieved for the first time and then used in scandal to attack another individual, particularly when adults suggest to children they have been victimized or when so-called repressed memories are, quote, recovered under hypnosis, which is a very vulnerable time for creating false memories. Planting false memories has been the life work of some scientists. And Elizabeth Loftus is one of those whose experiments on mutating memory are truly fascinating. She explains in a TED Talk she gave that even when a witness accounts a crime and expresses confidence in opinion and provides detail and says it with emotion, it still does not reliably prove an event happened without collaboration and other evidence. And she provides heartbreaking stories of prison terms that were later unquestionably proven to be based on false memories. Perhaps one of the most famous experiments Elizabeth Loftus did was the implanting of a false memory in adults that made them believe they were lost in a shopping mall as a child. The misleading interference techniques she and her colleagues utilize can dramatically change recollection to the point of causing confabulation. Before the Lost in Shopping Mall paper that was published in the December 1995 Psychiatric Annals by Elizabeth Loftus and Jacqueline Pickrell, there were several studies showing how memories of events can easily be altered. However, their Lost in a Mall study didn't just alter an existing memory, it implanted a memory of an event that never happened. So, what they did was ask people to recall details of events supplied by a close relative. Three of the events really happened, but the fourth event, which was being lost in a shopping mall as a child, was not true. Subjects in the study were told if they can't recall an event to just state that, and some subjects did maintain they could not recall getting lost, while others started to recall the occurrence that never actually occurred. Relatives were told to use plausible malls where the person grew up, and the subjects were told they were about five years old when it happened. They were told it was a long time before they were found by an elderly woman, and they were found crying. Therefore, they were provided not only the event, but their age, location, and actions to complement the false event, 
all from a trusted source. Most people have been lost in all sorts of settings. A sense of panic can occur when you can't find a relative, and that suggestion of it happening around the age of five years old in a mall may cross-pollinate with other memories. Some subjects in the study would provide vivid details of their lost incident that never actually happened. When we give context to the suggestion of being lost, particularly in a large place like a mall that we recall and did actually visit during childhood, those experiences can become integrated with suggestions from a trusted relative to make one believe and remember the false getting lost event. Do examples of false memory prove all our memories are interpretations? No, but other neuroscience and psychology experiments are starting to show there is enormous amounts of interpretation in memories. Now, all this talk of memory manipulation is medically important because it is one of the treatment frontiers for diseases related to memory, like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, even drug addiction. We know certain memories or environments that produce a memory can trigger a craving and relapse. Intercepting those associations can block cravings. Likewise, nearly everyone knows that certain sensory inputs and memories can trigger disease states like PTSD and severe anxiety. If we could alter the memory or even implant an alternate memory, perhaps we could treat such diseases without drugs. And yes, some drugs, like propanolol, are also being used and studied as an aid in trying to weaken some memories. But memory manipulation techniques are starting to find an increasing and important role. Yes, manipulating memory raises all kinds of ethical dilemmas. Let me briefly mention Edna Foa, I hope I'm saying that right, who is the director of the Center for the Treatment and Study of Anxiety, at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, and she was interviewed in the May 19, 2014 New Yorker magazine in a great article about this subject that was titled Partial Recall. She stated what I think is a reasonable answer to this ethical dilemma when she explained, and I'll quote her, you do have to look at the whole picture. We are talking about helping people who have been severely traumatized, and in many cases, they are unable to function. Nobody is suggesting that we rewrite the memory of someone who had a bad date or a fight with his mother. I just find that statement and argument entertaining, but perhaps a bit more ammunition is needed to justify the manipulation of memory for therapeutic purposes. Another quote about that from the same New Yorker article is from the neuroscientist and author Joseph Ledoux, who explained, and I'll quote him, We are nothing without our memories, but sometimes they also make us less than we could be. Although some ethicists argue that memory should not be tampered with, every special date and anniversary, every advertisement, every therapy session, every day in school is an effort to create or modify memory. Tampering with memory is a part of daily life. If we take a more realistic view of just how much we mess with memory, the dampening of memories that produce emotional responses in traumatized individuals might seem less malevolent. 
So let's pause here for a moment and talk about memory encoding. To form a memory and use it, a memory must be encoded, stored, and retrieved. One of the many things the Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist Eric Kandel says in the remarkable documentary titled In Search of Memory is that bridging psychology with neurobiology was one of the great accomplishments of neuroscience in his lifetime, something that he definitely played an important role in. If our understanding of biology, disease, psychology, and philosophy could unify, it could take medicine to that next frontier we currently sense is missing. To understand diseases of the brain that affect memory, we also need a better appreciation of memory when disease is not present. Again, our recall is not like a computer recalling data. Brains are not built like camcorders and they don't have memory chips. We reconstruct memories and outside peer pressures as well as diseases or traumas of the neurons influence those reconstructions. While we eventually learn not to believe everything we hear, a sign of wisdom is also not to believe everything you think. Understanding memory is malleable, that there are reconstructions altered over time, should make us question things on a deeper level. Now, one of the lines written by Bram Stoker in his novel Dracula was, Remember, my friend, that knowledge is stronger than memory, and we should never trust the weaker. <laughs> I love that. See, facts exist. The sun exists. How each individual relates to the sun is different. A gal working on a Hawaiian beach, watching sunsets each night, has a different relationship with the sun than an Alaskan, just as Copernicus had a perspective of the sun that must have been much different from that of Icarus. Having different perspectives doesn't eliminate facts, but things get complicated because a single brain can have different perspectives. And I want to talk a little bit about how our separate personalities are not unified. And I want to speak for a moment about dissociative identity disorder, which is controversial and often debated among mental health professionals. Previously, it was known as multiple personality disorder. Two or more personality states do exist within the same person, yet the person is usually not aware of those personality states. The personalities may display different body language, voice tone, philosophy, and memories. Now let me tell you about a case that fascinates me. It is a case of different personalities in the same person. Some of the personalities in this person could visually see, and some were blind. It was written up in a German journal in 2007. The title of the article was translated by a German professor friend of mine, and the English translation is blind and seeing in one person, conclusions concerning psychoneurobiology of sight. And he interpreted the name of the journal as neurologists, but then told me that a more literal translation of the German is nerve doctor. But anyway, let me quote from this article. We present a patient with dissociative identity disorder who after 15 years of diagnosed cortical blindness gradually regain sight during psychotherapeutic treatment. At first, only a few personality states regained vision, whereas others remained blind. 
This was confirmed by electrophysiological measurement in which visual evoked potentials were absent in the blind personality states, but normal and stable in the seeing states. The switch between these states could happen momentarily. As a neural basis for such psychogenic blindness, we assume a top-down modulation of activity in the primal visual pathway, possibly at the level of the thalamus or the primary visual cortex. Therefore, visual evoked potentials do not allow distinction of psychogenic blindness from organic disruption of the visual pathway. In summary, psychogenic blindness seems to suppress visual information at an early neural stage. Another quote. So the brain visual areas literally were not firing when some of this person's personalities were present. Those personalities really were blind, despite the person not always being blind with other personalities. Because we all really have more than one self, we are prone to responding and acting differently. The results can seem ironic. The politician spouting, family values, who gets caught soliciting a male prostitute, may truly have both personalities. Alfred Adler once said, it's easier to fight for one's principles than to live up to them. Possibly because, and this is my interpretation, all the selves of a person has within can sometimes be conflicting, and that may not be the worst thing. Many want to believe we have a true nature at the center of who we are, and not only is this not bearing out in modern neuroscience, it would be a disadvantage to display the same personality in all scenarios. Consider the special forces guy who can kill with expertise, and the personality he has in combat. A few days later, he may be holding his baby daughter with genuine tender love. His combat personality is turned off in that moment, and that is a good thing in my opinion. However, we also know that the combat-ready self can turn on at the wrong moments in certain individuals. That can particularly happen when the self is injured. A professor at Colorado College named John Riker, a guy I once studied under, has written some wonderful books for those in the mood for intense, thick writing. And my favorite book of his at the moment is titled, Why It Is Good To Be Good. And one of the things he says is, and I'm quoting him, an injured self reveals its deficits, traumas, protections, and compensations and symptoms. That's in the quote, but I don't know a single physician who hasn't seen at least a few patients whose symptoms are manifestations of protective defense mechanisms or symptoms birthed from past psychological traumas. Now, sticking with the writings of Professor Riker to drive home some points of the self in good times and disease, he explains, Understand that the self consists of different parts, each of which is capable of change and development, and between which there is a dynamic tension that is capable of development. When the sectors of the self harmoniously work together, we feel most vibrantly like ourselves. But he also then goes on to explain in his writing, when the nuclear self is traumatized to such a degree that its cohesion is compromised, three psychological reactions occur. One, the experience of intense disintegration anxiety. Two, an explosion of narcissistic rage. And three, the construction of defenses that cocoon the injured part of the self 
so to prevent consciousness from experiencing the disintegration anxiety, narcissistic rage, and the injuries to the self. And that's the end of the quote. What I think we can agree on is that those psychological reactions, while unpleasant to the person and those around them, they also frequently result in manifestations of physical symptoms. Professor Riker and so many others that take on these topics may not be writing specifically for physicians, but I think those doctors willing to take the time to study these things enrich their professional enjoyment when encountering such difficult patients. Otherwise, it can be very frustrating trying to treat the symptoms of certain patients when you are not understanding or appreciating the deeper roots of the problem. And to have a chance at resolving such miserable symptoms, we must take advantage of neuroplasticity. We spend a lot of time learning about tau proteins in Alzheimer's disease, prevention of strokes, pharmacology for mood disorders. But if we also stay somewhat current with neuroscience, memory, and the self, our lives as practitioners caring for these patients will be enriched. Likewise, our ability to empathize with the patient and have meaningful conversations with families about practical matters beyond antiplatelets, anticoagulants, cholesterol drugs, antipsychotics, we become better doctors. If we over-medicalize diseases affecting memory, like dementia and stroke, or those affected by memory, like PTSD and addictions, by focusing just on drugs, it becomes disheartening because our medications are really pretty disappointing at this point in history for treating those diseases. Now, don't get me wrong. Neuropsychopharmacology is indeed a fascinating frontier to explore. For example, let's consider some of what we know about the hormone oxytocin. It has a critical role in the regulation of brain-mediated processes of bonding and trust. It reduces fear and increases social interaction. It is released during activities like orgasm or when a baby feeds at the nipple, and the press therefore sometimes hypes it as the love drug for that reason. Oxytocin can provide a sense of safety. Diseases that are affected by memory, like PTSD, addiction, and phobias, might be manipulated by reducing the fear response and increasing social interaction by using oxytocin. If oxytocin can be combined with other therapies to increase trust and intimacy. For example, there was a study in the June 2009 journal called Hormones and Behavior, and it showed that intranasal dose of oxytocin given to males and females being shown photographs increased ratings of trustworthiness and attractiveness. Who knows? Perhaps it can be given in settings that cause fear to improve long-term trustworthiness of those environments. Maybe figuring out how to combine the implanting of a false memory with medicating with something like oxytocin is going to help us break through walls that have been tough to knock down. The point being is that there is so much to learn about the diseases we see each day that influence and are influenced by memory. Exploring the multiple potential therapeutic candidates is exciting. Until those therapies come to fruition, hopefully just learning more about these mind-blowing concepts is magnificent for many of you. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Gil Parat, and looking forward to talking to you next time.